Amen and amen and amen. How can it be? Thank you, Mary Beth and team. Thank you. There was a Roman emperor by the name of Arcadius, probably less known than most emperors. He was a weak man, and he was totally controlled by his wicked wife. It's almost like the Jezebel Ahab situation. They were in the late 300s. His wife hated a godly man by the name of John Chrysostom. John Chrysostom was the bishop of Constantinople at the time. He was one of those plain-spoken preachers like John the Baptist. He called the spade spade, and he called them for evil that they were doing. In fact, they were so evil that coupled that their son, Theodos, who was a Christian, became a believer, he actually asked the nation to forgive his parents for their wickedness. Chrysostom, who was born uh, 347, died about 406, was one of the truly great pillars of the early church in the 1300s. One day, in a fit of anger, the emperor and his wife called their advisors together and asked them to help give them advice on how to get rid of this man who was like a a thorn in their side because of his blazing righteousness. Each advisor (coughs) gave them his advice. One said, banish him in the desert. Another one said, uh, put him in prison. A third one said, confiscate all of his properties. And another one said, kill him. By the way, he came from wealth, came from power, John did, and he gave it all away to, to, to embrace the ministry. Finally, an old, very wicked and evil uh, courtier, a very crafty one, spoke up and he said, you know, you're all wrong. Your advice is really not accurate. You are making a great mistake. Uh, All of these suggestions are not really punishment for this man. I know this man, and I know him well. If you banish him in the desert, he will feel closer to God than he is in the city. If you put him in prison, he will be able to spend more time in prayer and praise than he is as a busy bishop. If you confiscate his property, it makes no difference to him because he gives it away anyway. If you condemn him him to death, you only open heaven for him. And then this malicious, devilish man said to the emperor, if you really want to punish Chrysostom, force him to commit sin. Force him to commit sin. I know this man. He fears nothing in the world more than sin. More accurately, he dreads nothing more than he dreads sin. I must confess to you 
that after reading these words and being familiar with him throughout church history, I, must, I said to myself numerous times, how I long, I long to be that person, that this would be spoken of me, that I dread sin more than anything else. Why did this godly man fear sin or dreaded sin? Answer, Jeremiah 44.4 said that God hates sin. Romans 5.12 said that sin brought death upon the world. He dreaded sin because in 1 Peter 2.24 it says that sin nailed Jesus to the cross. He dreaded sin because sin is a shameful thing that sullies our white garments of salvation that we wear when we come to Christ. Sin uh, brings a reproach upon the name uh, of Jesus which we wear. Sin is the very essence of rebellion against God. In fact, the Hebrew word for sin literally means a revolt of a subject against a benevolent and kind king. Sin in its very essence, is iniquity, is, is, is a distortion, is a disfiguring of that which is whole, lovely, and beautiful. Sin is the very essence of missing the mark that God sets for us. Uh, today we come to the episode in David's life, and if you're visiting with us, we're a couple of messages away from concluding this long, wonderful series from the life of this man whose heart after God's. And we come to this episode in his life, which is next to killing of Goliath, probably is the best known, and is known to Christians and non-Christians alike. I'm talking, of course, the Bible reading that you heard this morning, committing adultery with Bathsheba, ranging for the killing of her husband, Uriah and then trying to cover it up. As I said, that story is known to believers and non-believers. But please, please, do not let your familiarity with this story rob you of learning uh, from David's failure. Not only learning from his failure, but learning from his repentance and learning from his restoration and how God loves to forgive and restores a repentant sinner. Through the years, uh, many people have speculated as the reasons why uh, David failed. Uh, a lot of speculation and a, a lot of ideas and a lot of thoughts were given, and I'm going to kind of condense them all for you this morning. But I want you to know that as I go through these six things, I want you to know it is a forewarning to every one of us without exception. Your pastor is included. Because the moment you say, I got this, that's the moment the devil starts working. Amen? Some time ago, I was really young. I was probably in my early 30s, and this kind of very condescending guy said to me, he said, what are your weakness, Brother Yusuf? I said, are you kidding? I got all of them. All of them. What do you mean all of them? I said, I'm weak in every area. <laughs> there is no strength but the strength of the Lord. And these are not excuses. 
These are not rationalizing of David's failure. It's a forewarning to all of us. First of all, it was boredom. It was, it was boredom which caused David to get into this trouble. Beloved, the average American <laughs> is bored with life. If I can understand what's going on, I can tell you the average person is bored. You ask a person, he said, why do you work hard? He said, so I can earn more money. Why do you want to earn more money? So that I can uh, buy food. Why do you want to buy food? It's because I want to get strength. Why do you want to get strength? Because I want to be able to work. Why do you want to work? And the merry-go-round <laughs> just goes on and on and on and on. I happen to be privileged to know people throughout my life, and some people in this church, who literally work hard for one reason, and that's so they give money away to the Lord's work. That humbles me beyond measure. Now, David, this was David. When I think of people who literally live to work so they give money away, this was David. Because if you remember in the last message, he was giving his entire net worth for the glory of God. He was totally in. He was totally committed. There was no doubt in his mind. He said, if God does not want me to build a temple, I'm going to give all that I have for the future building, whoever God will raise to build that building. That was David. And he said, what happened? What happened of David of 2 Samuel chapter 7 to the David of 2 Samuel chapter 11? Something has changed. Something has happened. When his life purpose was the glory of God, and then all of a sudden he becomes bored with life. Now, beloved, as I said, this is a warning to all of us without exception. Young and old, watch out for getting bored. <laughs> that is the very first sign of trouble. The second possibility is that David was experiencing loneliness. Well, I think all of us in leadership, we know that there is a certain loneliness that goes with leadership. It's just that part of, it's, 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 it's the price you pay for leadership. Uh, and that is why he could say in Psalm 102, verse 7, he says, I have become like a lonely bird on the housetop. Someone would say, well, Michael, uh, he, he, he was king. How can a king be lonely? I mean, he had so many people in the court, in the, in the, in the royal court. He had so many. He can call in anybody and entertain him. He can be with, with lots of people. Anybody in the kingdom would be happy to receive an invitation to come and, and, and uh, you know, just uh, hang out with the king. <laughs> Sometimes there can be loneliness when you're surrounded by thousands of people. Well, some of you are saying amen. <laughs> I think all of you should say amen because it truly is a fact of life. It's a fact of life. You can experience loneliness of vision that nobody shares with you, or you can experience the loneliness of idea that nobody understands, or you can experience the loneliness of taking a unpopular stand with the culture and everybody starts shooting at you, or you can experience the loneliness of contentment. 
Even if there are thousands of people around you, you'll feel lonely under these circumstances. Now, let me confess to you a lesson that the Lord has taught me through the years, and I often wonder why I have to wait all these years to learn a lesson. Uh, I'm hard-headed, and God has to work hard to get me to learn a lesson. One of, one of the great lessons the Lord has taught me is to use these opportunities as a time to commune with God on a deeper level. And the third possible reason for David's failure is that he got tired of fighting. He just got tired of fighting. After 34 years of fighting and running, it's time to relax and take it easy. Hello, guys, my age. Hello? Yeah, I know you're listening. Take it easy, David. That's why I don't want any of you guys or gals or anybody to tell you, when are you retiring? I'll never retire. I might change jobs, but I'll never retire. <laughs> I'll never retire. I'm going to run into the arms of Jesus. I don't want to slouch into heaven. I want to run into the arms of Jesus. If I lose everything, I'm going to work in a, in a soup kitchen. I'll do something. Now, I know some of you get disappointed when you hear that, but uh, that's okay. God forgives you. <laughs> Listen, had David gone out with his men into the battlefield, he would not have ended up in the places of failure. Beloved, hear me right. The moment you relax your grip on the sword of the Word of God, the moment you relax your grip on the sword of the Spirit, the moment you relax your grip on being sober in the spiritual warfare, you will end up in places that you should not be. No wonder the Apostle Paul say to, says to Timothy, he said to him, endure hardship as a good soldier for Jesus Christ. Are you going through hardship? Endure that hardship. See the victory on its way to you. Then the fourth reason, possibility, is that David allowed his wife Michael's rejection uh, to get to him. <laughs> uh, he took it personally. He said, well, how do you not take rejection personally? Well, I'll explain to you in a minute. Remember when David danced before the Lord in front of the entire population, and he danced before God when the ark was being restored, and he, and he, and he basically he humbled himself before the Lord? You remember his wife, Michael, Saul's daughter? <laughs> Man, she gave him a tongue lashing when he got home. She sucked it to him. I mean, she let him have it, and she belittled him and put him down. Listen to me. Saul's daughter, Michael, was cold, cantankerous, critical, and crabby. <laughs> and David took it personal. Someone said, well, well, you know, but Michael, he had other wives. Yes, but Michael was the love of his life. Himirat, please. Rejection is severest and hardest to accept when it comes from the people that we love the most. Did you get that? Say amen. amen. So be careful. In David's case, instead of exercising leadership and headship in his home, servant leadership, he allowed bitterness to dig deep into his heart. In fact, we're going to talk about this in the next message or so. 
Beloved, listen to me. Lack of spiritual headship in the home and servant leadership in the home brought David disaster after disaster. And men, listen to me. God called you into servant leadership in your home. God called you into a spiritual headship in your home. And if you agree with me, say amen. The fifth possible reason for David's failure is pure good old-fashioned laziness. It's laziness. Look at verse 2. He got up in the afternoon. Sometimes let's say evening. <laughs> he got up in the afternoon. I mean, out of bed. I mean, this, <clears throat> this is self-indulgence. <laughs> this is not redeeming the time. Beloved, laziness gives the temper, the tempter the upper hand. Proverbs 12, 24 says, the hand of the diligent will rule while the slothful, that's kind of an old-fashioned word for laziness, <laughs> will be put to tribute. And the sixth possible reason for David's failure is this. He refused to hear the truth. He refused to hear the truth. When David sent a messenger, and the messenger came back to want to find out who she is, he came to him, and he said, she is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. Did you get that? The wife of David. She's another man's wife. Oh, but David, let that truth go by. I know and you know, when somebody doesn't want to hear the truth, I mean, they will use all sorts of rationalization and explanations and excuses, and I'll never forget years and years and years ago, because when I tell you why, you'll understand why it's years ago, when I used to do some counseling. I don't do counseling anymore, thank God, for a wonderful team who does a much better job than I can. <laughs> I am a lousy counselor, so get be, 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 be forewarned. <laughs> but I was sitting down with this gentleman over 25 years ago, and I was trying to explain to him the biblical headship and the biblical leadership in the home and how he must exercise and how he not needs to get this and be a servant leader of his home. And, and finally he looked at me and he said, I think I understand you from the Middle East. I said, you just got that now? <laughs> I mean, do you think this is a sunburned Swede? He said, he said, that's because you're from the Middle East. I said, got to do with, what has got to do with that? He said, in the Scripture, I opened the Word of God, and I showed him his role, his responsibility in the home. D.L. Moody once said, if you're continuously criticizing your pastor, it is because he's touching a sore spot. I know I'm doing that this morning. That's okay. As a matter of fact, I read a story about a little boy who didn't like what the pastor was saying, so he wrote a letter to God. <laughs> he, he just didn't like that. He said, he said, Dear God, is the Reverend Smith a friend of yours, or do you just know him through business? <laughs> Signed, Danny. <laughs> you see, through the years, 
I've had honest people who have come and said to me, Michael, you're just so uptight when it comes to the interpretation of the Scripture. You are just too literal when it comes to, you need to loosen up. (laughs) God bless them. I prayed with them, prayed for them. But I know experientially, listen to me, I never tried to come up here and put a face that is not me. I know experientially that when hearts are hardened and necks stiffened, no sermon, no preacher, no friend, no church, nothing will be able to get through to that person except God the Holy Spirit. In fact, David actually thought that he's gotten away with it because it's been a while now. He's a a man, I got away with this shenanigan. He didn't realize that not only choices have consequences, even if these consequences do not show up for months or years. You see, the law of the land at the time said that uh, when adultery is committed, the adulterer and the adulteress both put to death. How could David get around the law of the land? How could David circumvent the law of the land? How could David kind of get away with breaking the law of the land? Well… If I can get him, if I can't get him to go and sleep with his wife, I'll get him killed. Oh, beloved, listen to me. Listen to me. Listen to me. The one whose eyes neither slumber nor sleep. The one whose eyes see what nobody else sees. The one whose eyes penetrate what no camera lens can detect is watching. Months have passed since this horrific deed was done, and everybody forgot about it. Oh, everybody except. Except the one whose justice is just as real as his mercy. A lot of people like to separate the justice of God and the mercy of God. You can't separate them. Two sides of the same coin. I, I can never remember praying for justice for myself. Have you? I've always prayed justice for other people. <laughs> and I prayed mercy for myself. That's just human nature. Beloved, the king may have been able to silence his subject, but not his raging conscience. David may have been able to rationalize it to the chief military commander, Joab, but he could not rationalize it to the chief examiner of his soul. And that is why you see at the end of chapter 11, it says, but the things, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The singer of Israel, a beautiful psalmist, have written some magnificent psalms. Be forewarned. Now, if you study the Scripture carefully, you're going to find that the Lord seldom uses the same method to speak to us. I know sometimes, because I'm hard-headed, He had to use the two-by-four a few times, you know? But I know some of you are much more... Um, receptive, and he speaks to you, and you obey right away. 
You don't, you, you know, but, but you see, the way he speaks to you and you and you and you and me, all different. He doesn't speak to us all at the same time. For it was the sense of God's inspiring majesty that brought Job to repentance. It was the exalted holiness of God that caused Isaiah to, to cry out, Woe to me, for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips. It was the manifestation of Jesus' power that convicted Peter uh, about his false self-confidence and, and, and made him cry out and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. It was the day in the day of Pentecost when the power of the Holy Spirit was manifested that hearts were pierced and 3,000 people came to repentance. And here in 2 Samuel chapter 11, God uses a method that is going to be a method that's unique to David. God could have spoken to David, but he probably not in the mode of listening to God. You see, when you have departed and you moved away from the umbrella of the covering of God because of deliberate sin, you're not in a mood of listening. You won't hear God. There are too many noises around you. You can't hear Him. And so God had to send Him a flesh and blood. He had to send Him the prophet Nathan. I'm going to see more about this in the next message, so come be prepared. It will be a joyful, beautiful experience, and we're going to see, probably pray Psalm 51 together. So Nathan comes in, and he gives him a parable. As I said, I'm going to expound on this in the next message, but I needed to cover it a little bit here. He comes to give him a parable, and then he applies the parable. I thought long and hard, actually, as I was preparing this. Who would cherish this task of going to the most powerful man in the land and tell him about his sin, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but I certainly wouldn't cherish that. That's not something I would enjoy doing. But nonetheless, if God assigns it, you do it. We as prophets and priests in the New Testament, we do not have those offices because all of the believers are priests, all the believers are prophets. In fact, Moses prophesied about that a long time ago. He said, oh, that all of God's people are prophets. And in the New Testament, we all prophets. And therefore, we need to speak the truth with love. We need to speak with it to others or sinful culture at large. It may never be easy. It will never be easy. It was never easy. It's not easy. It will never be easy. But it's the only way to please the Lord. Speaking the truth in love. Look at, if you look at the parable, go a little bit further, and you see the interpretation of that parable. Parable is very simple. A poor man with one lamb, talking, of course, about Uriah and his wife, Bathsheba, And then there's a rich man. This lamb was so dear to the poor man that that literally slept in his bosom. The rich man wronged that poor man. Because the rich man had lots of herds and cattle, lots of lambs. 
But then he takes, when a traveler came, he takes the one lamb that the poor man has and offers it to the traveler. What is Nathan doing here? He is painting a word picture. One of the most magnificent things. He's painting a beautiful word picture. Uh, he is highlighting the enormity of the wrong that was done. He was elevating and highlighting that sense of wrong. How about describing how this rich man who had all kinds of herds and cattle seizes the one and only lamb of that poor man. Why? Because the rich man had a traveler. A traveler. As I said, I'm going to expand a lot more on this. Who's the traveler who came to the rich man's house? (laughs) David's eyes. (laughs) That's who the traveler is. His wandering eyes. The traveler represents his restless desire. The traveler represents the progression of lust. The traveler represents uh, the invading thoughts into our minds uh, that uh, have not been captured to Christ. The traveler here is the roving eyes of David in connection with Bathsheba. And that is why Paul says, 2 Corinthians 10.5, he said that we must take every thought. How many of those thoughts? Captives for obeying, to obeying Christ. Listen carefully, please. It is absolutely true that we have no control over the thoughts that go through our heads, right? I mean, we have no control over that. But we have control over the fact that we can stop them from nesting. In fact, it was Martin Luther who made this illustration. He said, I, can, I can't stop a bird from flying over my head, but I sure can keep it from nesting and laying eggs and hatching. <laughs> but here, David welcomed the traveler. Here, David entertained the traveler. David hosted this traveler. David allowed this traveler to have the run of the house of his life. Hear me right. Continuously a nonstop entertainment of ungodly thoughts paves the way for sin and failure. But I also want you to notice that David's reaction to that parable. His first reaction was really emotional. And I'm stepping ahead of next week, but I, I, I want to tell you this because I want you to be thinking about this. His reaction to that parable and this poor man who lost his one lamb and, and the rich man who took it, and, and his reaction immediately was emotional, was not biblical. I want to explain this to you because it's very important. I'm going to share a personal testimony because it is very important. We not react emotionally, react biblically, because whenever we react with our emotions, not from the Word of God, things are made worse for us. 
You say, Michael, how do you know that? I've done it. I've done it. See, the law of the land required that if a person steals a lamb, is required to pay fourfold, give four lambs back. If he had to work for the rest of his life to do it, he has to pay four back. That's the law of the land. That's the word of God, <laughs> because that's what they're operating on the Old Testament law. The Bible didn't say when a man steals a lamb, he should be killed. No. Just restore it fourfold. <laughs> David reacted emotionally, said, this man must be killed. Why, why, why react emotionally instead of biblically? I want to tell you something that you can take to the bank. Listen carefully. Because David was harboring sin in his life. It made him critical of others. Be very careful when you are judging other believers, particularly when you judge their motives. We are never to judge a person's motive. While you're harboring sin in your life, be very careful. The one who has an uneasy conscience always rails against the sin of another believer. The one who is most merciless with other believers, is often the one who's most desperately in need of mercy. The one who's quick to judge other believers' motives is covering up something. It's covering something. Covering it up. See, the moment finished, David finished pronouncing the sentence upon this hypothetical character in Nathan's parable. Nathan said, you're the man. You're the man. Let me ask you this. Has the Holy Spirit of God convicted you of something? And he's constantly saying to you in a gentle voice, you're the man, you're the woman. You're the boy, you're the girl. Are you harboring resentment that you have never been able to deal with? Are you holding on to some bitterness that is eating you alive? Are you in an unwholesome relationship that does not belong there? And God is telling you to give it up. Are you holding back money that belongs to God? Are you unfaithful to your spouse and keep on being unfaithful? And you get some remorse, but then you keep going being unfaithful. Don't, I want you to respond like David. As I said, we're going to look at Psalm 51 because that psalm gives us evidence of the depth of conviction of David. I'll see more in the next message, but, but you're going to see the depth of his sorrow. You're going to see the depth of his grieving over sin, the depth of his feeling of the enormity of sin. In fact, every verse of Psalm 51 shows us the depth of his anguish and the reality of his repentance. 
David uses words that I pointed out in the beginning of the message, you know, talking about the meaning of the word sin. And, and he uses all these words, iniquity, sin, transgression. And beloved, listen to me. Only those who have spiritual depth, only those who truly hunger for righteousness, only those who have longing to please the Lord, they will fear that sin that Chrysostom feared. Only those who would not rationalize, would not sweep things under the carpet or explain things away, but express repentance. They're the ones who are going to be restored and forgiven. They're the ones who repent of their sin, confess their sin, will experience true forgiveness and true restoration. And beloved friends, I'm getting ready to the end now, getting ready to close. I want you to listen carefully. Those are the very people whom God loves to restore and renew Oh, there are many people who repent like Saul. Remember Saul throughout the series? <laughs> you know, kind of a very emotional repentance. But then there are those, thank God, who repent like David. Saul's temporary repentance was always a cheap repentance, or always kind of fleeting repentance, momentary repentance, uh, always had crocodile tears. But David's repentance... It was genuine repentance. It was true repentance. It was forsaking type of repentance. And beloved, this is the type of repentance that pleased the Lord. I've often said, in fact, I preach a message. Sometimes we think repentance belongs to the person who never came to Christ when they repent and come to Christ. Believers should live a repentant lifestyle. The Bible said, if we say we have no sin, they said, we say, because it's not true. <laughs> we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess, God is faithful and just. I'm going to do something different today. As the musicians start coming up, I want, if you can kneel, kneel. If you can't sit, because I'm going to make the next chorus that we're going to sing together to be really a prayer. Be your prayer, your prayer, my prayer. Open my eyes, Lord. I want to see. I want to see if something I'm hiding from you, if it's something I'm not even aware of. I want to hear you, Lord. Let that be your prayer, sitting or kneeling. Lauren, thank you.